Have you heard the story about the former gangbanger who preached drunk to his fellow gang members, got busted on a felony rap before he was 18, and eventually asked, God, teach me to work? That guy who exchanged the lucrative income from drug dealing for a minimum wage job at a fast food chain and now spends his free time studying ancient scripture in Hebrew? Yeah, me neither. Till Earl. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over, either through their own missteps or through no fault of their own. All walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Now, here's your host, Tracy Winchell. R006 features Earl Delaney. He's a small business owner. He and his family are Messianic Jews, and they study with Christians and Jews across the River Valley. Before that, though, Earl lived a dangerous life of gangbanging and drug dealing, existing between dangerous folds of the relative safety of Arkansas gang culture and the deadly world of West Coast gangs. In this interview, Earl shares his startling expectations, or lack thereof, of life as a young man, his early conversations with a God he wanted to know, and the certificate of redemption he received from Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Hey, Earl. Hello. You're accustomed to telling your story. Tell me where you tell your story. Well, I've told my testimony at different prisons in Oklahoma mostly. Um, I was able to share at an Arkansas prison. And also I spoke for three years at the Community Rescue Mission in Fort Smith. How does it help you when you share your story? It it just helps me to it helps me to see the change in, in my own life and also just to be able to give people hope, you know, because we all suffer and some of us have suffered more and to just see somebody overcome it is uh gives you hope. Well, let's just dive right in. Since you're familiar with your your, your story, um let's begin at that beginning kind of what brought you to Arkansas. Okay. Um, I was born in Long Beach, California. And before we came to Arkansas, I was about five years old. We lived in Compton, California. And this was in the early 80s, a lot of gang activity. And we stayed with a cousin of mine on Long Beach Boulevard in Compton. And he had some issues with somebody there and my dad, my mom, and my brothers had uh, two brothers at the time. We were standing in this apartment building, and uh, it was a shootout, and they, they shot up the building. And my dad let my brother through a window, and he was able to get the police there, and, you know, they came and took care of everything. And the next day, we were in the car headed to Arkansas. So uh, we came to Arkansas at a young age, and I'm really glad that my dad brought us here to Arkansas. And his his motivation was to try to protect you from gang violence? I think so, to just have us in a different place, um, get us away from that, um, the inner city. 
So then what happened? Your your whole purpose for being in Arkansas is to get away from gangs. Yeah, uh, well, we we did pretty good when we were younger. Um, sometime later on, my dad got a back injury. So a lot of the things he did with us for us fishing and outdoor activity, we wasn't able to do it anymore. So we just kind of ran around and hung around the neighborhood. But we had uh, family members that would come from the city from time to time, uh, from Compton, L.A., they were involved in gangs. So um, with us being young, we kind of looked up to them. You know, they had a lot of money, had good reputations, um, and just everything that comes with that lifestyle. So we kind of kind of wanted to be like them in a way. And you were invited into a gang? Uh, we I first started running around with them when I was about probably 10 or 11. Probably got initiated when I was about 12. And uh, that kind of started my my lifestyle with the gangs. And so, what was a what was a typical what was a typical evening like on when you're running around with a gang in Arkansas? Well, when we first started, it wasn't wasn't too many gangs in Arkansas. You had uh, gangster disciples. Uh, didn't really have too many crib gangs at all. We were one of the probably first ones around. Uh, you had a small, small group of blood gangs. But with us, we would meet people mainly from Oklahoma. And uh, we would have a connection, even if they was from a different Crip gang, uh, Hoover Crips, which in uh, California, we didn't get along with them. But here we did. But we would all get together early in the morning. And, you know, if we were kicked out of school, you know, we would just get together, lift weights, hang out and just kind of run around. And at that point, what what did you think life was all about? them to, to me it was just about making money and just representing who who we were you know we um at that time we believed that if you was a crib gang member then it meant that um you had an enemy and you had to hate that enemy and you couldn't be around that enemy at all what happened on the the roughest the, where your turning point began uh, probably my turning point was when my, my cousin carnell got killed um not sure how old I was, but he was around 14 years old, 14 or 15. He was staying with us here in Fort Smith, and he would do work for my dad. And he was really excited to go back home, to go to California to visit his parents and to see everybody out there. And um, he went to Duarte, California, and he was he was murdered out there. And we had cousins that was murdered before, but it wasn't like Cornell. With Cornell, we really knew him. We was real close to him. It was like a big brother to us, so... At that time, I kind of hated gangs in a way because he was murdered because of who he was with, uh, one of my family members. So um, we hated the gangs, and we was real hurt by what happened. But I, I would say sometime around then was the, the turning point. We um, th- That's whenever it was kind of, I don't know if it was the music or whatever it was, but everybody around here wanted to be in a gang. And so since we had the connection to California, that's the gang that we chose to be a part of the Compton Crips. And that's kind of how we started. So is it true, I mean, it, that you're you're kind of in a gang, but your cousin gets killed. Is it true that it's hard to back out of a gang? How does that how, how does that work? It it can be. Um it's it's hard if they figure that you're doing it for weakness. You know, you may have issues with people. But if you're doing it for the right purpose, some people respect it. Some people always see you as a gang member no matter what. Even when you're out, they, they just say that you're inactive. But, of course, me, myself, I, 
don't have any tendencies to for that lifestyle at all. I think it's a wicked lifestyle, even though I don't um, I don't feel bad for my past. I guess it's the best way to say it because I learned a lot from what I went through. Your cousin gets killed. You're back here in Arkansas. How did that change your frame of reference about life? Well, um, we had a cousin that came out here from uh, Compton, and he he was the one that was kind of responsible for my cousin getting killed. And when he came out here, he moved out here for a little while and stayed out here. And we seen how much respect he got. And even if we had issues here, they would take care of it for us. So um, when we seen that power, we wanted the same kind of power, too. So um, we did all we could to get the reputation, you know, to get the name out there. And um, we were pretty much known in, in the city. So your cousin's death repelled you from a gang, but the cousin essentially responsible for his the other cousin's death drew you in. Yeah, and it, it really doesn't make any sense, but that's that's about how it happened. And even him, when he... When we first met him, he tried to keep us away from it. But whenever he seen that we wanted to be in some kind of gang, he said, well, this is the gang y'all be from because it's, it's the family. So that's the gang that we chose. And um, to us, it felt like we had a lot of protection being in it because we actually had generations that were in this gang, even in our family. And in his mind, it must have been a way for him to protect you as much as he could. Yes, yes. Where was God in all of this? We we really didn't go to church, didn't have any kind of religious upbringing at all. My my grandparents, of course, they they were religious, but we rarely seen them. Most of our family lived in California. So we had one aunt in Arkansas, and that was about it. She went to church, but of course we didn't go much with her, so we just didn't think much about religion. We we believed because even in the um, hanging out at the park with the gang members, we would talk about that at different times. I remember it was a time when I told them when I got older, I would preach, and then of course we just kept drinking and kind of went along with the with the day after that. But I always think about that now. So you preached in a gang, drinking, and you talked about God. Yes. Can you can you expound on that a little bit? I mean, what what those were your earliest conversations about God were ministering to your brother gang members? Yeah, um I always did believe in God, didn't know much about God, but I always believed and I always wanted to I knew if I lived to be old, I would want to change my life. I knew I wouldn't I knew I wouldn't want to be in a gang forever. And that's one reason why I don't have tattoos and you know, nearly everybody I know in the gang has tattoos, but I have one tattoo and that's it. Glad I didn't get any more. <laughs> so you're how old maybe? And you're thinking, I might not live this long because this life may kill me, but if I survive it, I want to have a relationship with God. Yeah, I was probably, probably about 12 or 13. Of course, in, in Arkansas, we didn't worry about, you know, forests, you know, somebody killing us here. We, you know, we would fight and do different things and, you know, sell drugs and things like that. But we were kind of back and forth between here and California. Of course, California, we had to live a different way. We had to watch out, especially, you know, living in both places. You have to know where you can go, where you can't go. So um, 
it was normal in, in our family to see people die, you know, to see them die or to see them sent to prison for life. So that's kind of what I expected. But I said that if I ever made it to be old, I would want to get my life right. At what point did you leave gangs? Well, I um, I went back to California when I was around 15 years old. I got a felony charge in Fort Smith, and they tried me as an adult. So I moved back to California, and, of course, it was different not being out there for so long. But it ended up being the same thing. I was gangbanging out there selling drugs, and um, I met my wife. At the time, she lived in Long Beach. I met her in Long Beach, and I think this was early 2000. And we um, decided to come here to Arkansas to come back. Told her it was a lot easier to make it, you know, for us to find financial issues and everything. And, you know, just to get away from that atmosphere. So we came to Arkansas and I planned on doing the right thing. She was pregnant. I said, well, I got a son, so I'm going to try to do good. And, you know, I went and got me a job and seemed to be going pretty well. And then, you know, we started smoking marijuana. Then little little by little, I said, well, you know, uh, it's kind of expensive out here. I could buy my own. So I began to sell marijuana and then it kind of got me right back into the lifestyle. So I started, you know, getting back into the gang activity here in Fort Smith. And, you know, we did a lot of other things. And then one day a friend of mine, he shot somebody here in Fort Smith. We were doing drugs that night and we was kind of shorted on some drugs so I told him that um, if they didn't give us the money back, I would rob the lady. So I went back over there, and we had a gun with us. We knocked on the door, and they didn't come to the door. So I gave my friend a pistol, told him to hold it, and we began to bang on the door some more. And he started shooting through the house. He shot a guy in the hand, shot three of his fingers off. And, of course, the next day I went to jail for it. They didn't know who my friend was. And at the time when that happened, I felt... I felt like I had no hope. I wasn't religious at all, but I believed in God. So I prayed and I prayed that God either save me or kill me. I prayed that I wouldn't even wake up in the morning because I was tired of my lifestyle. I was tired of getting locked up and I was tired of the same old thing. So I was hoping that he would answer my prayer. And I do believe he did. Of course, it took another month for me to come to salvation but a month later, our house was raided. Police kicked down the door, and they took my wife to jail. My wife thought I had a job, but I never had a job. I told her I you know, was going to work every day, but actually I just went out and picked up money. So she went to jail, and she got out the next day, and we were supposed to get a divorce, and we had, had a lot of issues, and she told me, not to say anything to the police. And I told her, I said, well, I just tell them everything, do my time. And, you know, we'll just uh, do what we got to do. So um, we met a pastor a little while before that at Walmart. We took his number down. And whenever I went to the house, most of the stuff we had in the house was still there. The police didn't really get anything. And I took it as a sign from God that he was that he kept me safe but I had to change my life. So at that time I gave up everything, gave up the drugs, the guns, and this completely changed my life. So your reboot came in stages and all at once. Yes. 
How, how do you think that works for people? If somebody's listening to your story and, I don't know, maybe goes to Walmart to look for a, a pastor or a hope maybe, I don't know, should they expect a moment or a series of choices or both? I, I think it's I think it's both. Um, it was a lot of different things happening at that time. You know, the issue with me and my wife, the issue with the house getting raided, and also my grandfather had died. And I went back to California to his funeral, and it seemed like the guy was talking directly to me. And it seemed like nobody else really heard it, but he was talking about the exact things we were doing, the, the gang situation, the drug situation. So when I came back, I came back already kind of with a conviction in my heart. So I think it's stages, but also I do think it's something that's instant also because it's it's supernatural. And I hungered for it before it even happened. He he put it in me to hate the sin before I stopped sinning because it was a time when I loved it. I loved the lifestyle. I, I, I didn't have any issues with it. I would get locked up when I got out. You know, it was always females at the house. It was always liquor. It was a lot of fun. But then I began to hate that lifestyle. I began to hate myself. And the scripture says, if you hate your life, you will gain it. But if you love it, you will lose it. And at that time, I really hated my life. And I I believe because of that, I gained it. He he showed me what life was really about. There's another question that keeps popping up in my head. Let's say that someone listening to this knows of a young man or even a young woman who grew up in a in a world that I can't fathom. I cannot fathom being 12 years old and not being absolutely certain that I would grow up to be an adult. So what about someone listening who know someone or love someone who doesn't have any concept that they can expect to have a life after teen years. How can we be a good influence and and show someone, demonstrate, not tell them, but demonstrate to a 10 or a 12 year old, there can be hope beyond what you know. You just have to take them, take them out of the environment, show them, show them something different, you know, and that's kind of how it was with us even coming to Arkansas. Even the first time when my dad brought us, he was bringing us to something that was different. You know, if we hadn't left at that age, I don't know if I would have ever even made it to, you know, to be even 16 or 17 because it was, gangs everywhere where we were uh, living at at that time. But uh, just to, to give them a chance, you know, people, they look at movies and sometimes they think that people are just, um, of course you do got to watch out with some people, but they think that people just want to harm everybody. And it's not like that. I was a gang member. And if you was not a gang member, you would have no problem with me at all. You know, it's like I hated certain gang members, certain colors, before us, just going out harassing people in the public is not anything that we ever did. Now, of course, you you have that at times, but I think sometimes they make it seem as though it's normal. 
But if you can give a person a chance, take a person to do something, even something small as fishing or something, it'll make a big difference. Some people in the inner city never see anything but the inner city. And when you talk about colors, you're talking about a, a gang color. Yes. yes. Not necessarily a, a skin color kind of a thing. That's not a, that's a, the, sort of the gang culture. Yeah, well, because b- back in those days, my, my parents, they were good good parents, but they knew what we did and they knew how we were. So, you know, had we got murdered out there, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But we did often see people who their kids would get murdered and they would act like it was a shock, like they didn't know what their kids were doing, you know, but we were gang members and that's a part of the gang life. You, um, you pretty much throw your life away. You know, you either get a life sentence, you'll get addicted to drugs or you'll get murdered. So realistically, is there anything I can do about that? I've never lived in that world. What can I do? If you was to come across a person like that, you you could do a lot, especially if it's a young person, just by talking to them and spending time with them. They don't um, they don't feel love. You know, I had two parents, but I didn't feel any love. You know, my dad rarely talked to us, and my mom, she just pretty much let us do whatever we wanted to do. I mean, we was drinking when we was 13, 14 years old, and you know, she could care less. Hurt people hurt people even when they're our, our own children, huh? Yes. Tell me about your life now. You you went through this transformation that was sudden and gradual. Where has that reboot brought your life today? Well, um, when, I, when I came to faith, I... Um, I started, my first job was at McDonald's, which was kind of hard for me. I went from selling drugs, making a lot of money to working at McDonald's, but I was still happy at the same time because I was free. And I remember that um, I got a factory job and I would pray that the father would teach me how to work. And to most people that may sound strange, but I never did work, didn't know how to work, and I just wasn't used to it. But um, I ended up getting a pretty good job later. Somebody gave me a chance, a landscaping company. I was going to trial for the drug charge, and um, he still gave me a chance and let me work for the company. So I worked there for eight years. Um, outlasted a lot of the people that were there. And then after that, I was able to start my own uh, landscaping company. We went to um, church for about two years, and... Um, the father told me that he wanted me to worship like Israel. Of course, I figured that meant to just be more spiritual, you know, uh, keep the Sabbath. So I began to, I began to keep the Sabbath um, about two years into my uh, faith in Yeshua. And I learned more and more throughout the years about that and about other things. I was able, had the opportunity to speak at the mission in different prisons and things like that. And now we, um, of course, we're Jewish, so we still do a lot of the traditions. We keep the Sabbath. We do a lot of the prayers, but we also believe in Messiah. So what we do now is uh, try to teach, you know, at different churches about the Hebrew, about the origins of the Christian faith, and just try to help people however we can. What? words of advice or comfort or hope would you give someone who's just really struggling? Is there a God? 
what kind of flavor of God am I supposed to worship? How, how do you do, how do you help someone who is maybe confused in faith or lack of faith? Well, it says in the Bible that the Father is spirit, so we, we must worship him in the spirit and in truth. I remember when I first started praying, I really didn't know how to pray. So I would just, um, I go sit at the table. Sometimes I would probably have a beer in my hand and I would just talk to him like I was talking to anybody else. I probably use language that I don't use now, but he's real and he knows you. He knows everything about you. So it's nothing you can hide anyway. So just to be real with him, tell him how you feel, you know, even if it seems negative because he knows, he knows the intents of our hearts even. And, um, I believe he'll guide you if you just ask him. And what about those of us who love someone who's struggling with their faith? What's the best way we can we can support them? Do we get in their business and tell them what they're supposed to believe, or do we just love them? And if we just love them, how do we do that? Well, you just... Um... I would just find out what they like to do that you agree on. And then if it's a point that you agree with them on, you can um, you can focus on that. We deal with a lot of different religions and different belief systems. And what we try to do is just to meet the people where they are, to not get into the issues that we don't agree on, but just deal with the things we, we agree on. And sometimes just spending time with people. A lot of people, they they just don't have anybody. You know, with everything we have now, we don't have a lot of time, even though we have electronics and all this stuff that's supposed to help us with time. We really don't have time or we say we don't have time. And that's one of the reasons why I quit doing ministry. We ministered at the Forest Square Church in Fort Smith for a long time. But um, it came a time where the father told us to just stop. And it kind of confused us. We're like, well, you know, what what are we going to do then? And I met a young man at a coffee house that same day. He's probably 13, 14 years, pretty young, but real knowledgeable in, in scripture. So I began to share with him some uh, some Hebrew things I had and left some stuff with him. And his mom was listening to us and she was kind of looked like she was lost. She didn't know what we was talking about. But after that, it kind of showed me that people are in a world, not not in a church and um Paul said that he would rather preach to those who had not heard. So the ministry really is outside of the walls is with people. And that's what we do now. Um, if a ministry needs me and I'm open, I'm, I'm there. You know, if a person needs me, I'm there. You know, if I'm not working and I get a phone call, I'm there. And I think that's how we're supposed to be as believers and not to get stuck in a structured organization that can bind you. So that's your version of of loving one another. To to, to be free, well, when you're free, you can you can love one another when you're free. It seems you found freedom in learning Hebrew. Can you talk about that? What that freedom is, your ability to to interpret scripture from way back instead of reading what I have to do, which is pull out three or four different versions? Yeah, with, with the Hebrew, it's a, it's a living language. It's, it's so many different facets of it. You you know, each each letter is a word in itself. 
I mean, you have the word and then you also have the letters to, to make words. And, you know, it was um, all about the blessing in the Torah. There was always somebody fighting for the blessing. Somebody didn't get it. Somebody wanted it. And I think it's the, it's the same thing now. People want to be blessed. They want to they want to feel needed. And that they want to. Um, they want to please people. And I think that's the best way we could please the Father is to know his word because you, you're supposed to have a answer for anybody that asks for the hope that you have. And the questions are getting harder, it seems. So I think we need to um, do all we can to be able to answer those questions. Um, you know, we start the, start the Sabbath service with blessings. You know, we bring in the Sabbath. We bless the children, you know, um, the wife. And I think it's a lot in that. We um, sanctify that day and it kind of helps us throughout the week. And we see that in many cultures, you know, you don't see a lot of Jewish people in prison. You know, you don't see, you know, a lot of Jewish gangs or anything like that. And I think it's because of the blessings and the uh, oracles that he gave us. And you're, you're talking about actually practicing instead of the, either Christian or Jew in name only. That's We've talked about that too. That's kind of a, that actual practicing that faith. What's the difference between claiming a faith and practicing a faith to you, Earl? Um, pe- people can tell. Pe- people can tell if you're, if you're real. You know, every, most everybody says they believe, but, you got to have some works that goes along with it. We kind of hear that debate sometimes with faith and works, but in Hebrew it's imuna. It's the word that um, you could say kind of ties in a faith, but it's it's not the same definition. It means to hear and to do. It's almost like the word shema. So it's actually an action that you have to do. It's like the physical and the spiritual. And that's what we are. We're physical beings and we're spirit, spiritual beings also. So to just believe it or hope it's nothing if you don't actually put put your feet to it. What's the first thing that someone can begin to put their foot to toward faith? Well, the, the first thing is the first thing is really the most important thing is to talk to him, to to know him. Because when you know him, you know that you know him, and. As the scripture says, we have an anointing that we don't need any man to teach us. And we know that that's not talking about a man teaching you for us a person, because when we read the scripture, it was men that wrote the scripture. But it's speaking of him being in you. So you should be able to discern what's right and what's wrong. You should be able to discern what's good and what's evil and to know the path that he has for you instead of somebody telling you the path that he wants you to walk in. You want to talk about the pardon, maybe, or not? Oh, yes. Um, like I, I think I mentioned earlier that I had, I was tried as an adult when I was uh, 15. I actually turned 16 before I got the sentence. And this was 21 years ago. And as we celebrated uh, Passover this year, I received a uh, pardon. And it, uh, for it to fall on that day was real exciting. We were in there making unleavened bread and just preparing for for the day, and we got the certified letter that I had got the pardon from from the governor, which um, 
to have it on Passover. We know Passover represents freedom. It, it was just a great thing. It made me feel like a completely new person. Wow. So the reboot kind of continued in that, in a way, that pardon is a symbol of your reboot, but you're telling me that it was kind of in it on its own, a reboot of its own. Yes. And we, we feel now that he has something for us here soon. We don't know what, but um, it's, it's definitely exciting. It's been exciting the whole time just to see everything that has happened in our life from, from the time we got saved till now, you know, um, it's, it's really been a blessing. It's a blessing to see my son is 15 now. And, um, it's, it's a 360 from my lifestyle. I mean, he, he's humble. Um, very good young man. Would you care to close us out in a, in a Hebrew prayer of some sort, maybe? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll do the Shema. It's probably about time anyway. So we'll do that one, which is one of the main prayers that we do as Jews. We try to do this one three times a day. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malkuto Le'olam v'ayed. Thanks, Earl. Earl's story is remarkable. He matter-of-factly walked us through some harrowing days in his life so that we might find encouragement, hope, and even understanding. If you'd like to reach out to Earl about his faith, if you'd like to study with him and his family, or if you'd like to invite Earl to speak, send us a message here at the Reboots podcast and we'll hook you up. Links in the show notes. Do you like what we're doing with Reboots and with Winchell StoryWorks? If so, would you consider a monthly subscription? This digital infrastructure isn't cheap. Check out our Patreon page for more information about the extras I'm putting together for financial backers. A link is in the show notes. And even if you can't support us financially, we've recorded enough interviews to take us into late summer and early fall, and I cannot wait to share them with you. I'm Tracy Winchell. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your reboot story privately on our StoryWorks blog or as a guest on an upcoming podcast. And we appreciate your feedback, either in the iTunes store or by way of email. Drop us a line reboots at winchellstoryworks.com or on our website winchellstoryworks.com